you have to live these moments to understand how good, how determined, how strong was Niki Lauda. Niki Lauda was an incredible man. Hi everyone and welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest this week is a man who for a time was one of the most sought-after motorsport managers in the world. He made a name for himself in rallying before switching to Formula One as Ferrari's sporting director in November 1975 on the eve of what would become one of the most tumultuous seasons in the sport's history. The man I'm talking about is Daniele Aldetto. The timing of my conversation with Daniele is significant because this week marks 45 years since Nicky Lauda's fiery crash at the Nürburgring on the 1st of August 1976. That was the crash that left Nicky staring death in the face and it also turned that year's World Championship on its head. And as the most senior Ferrari man attending races, Daniele had to navigate the team not only through that incredibly difficult weekend in Germany, he had to guide it through the next few months as well, which included the dramatic title decider in Japan at the end of the year. But that's not all, because Daniele's Formula One career didn't start and finish with Ferrari. He also fronted Lamborghini's Formula One operations in the early 90s, as well as working for Ligier, Arrows and most recently Super Aguri. Remember the time that Senna tested a McLaren Lamborghini? That was Daniele's doing. Or the time when Takuma Sato's Super Aguri overtook Fernando Alonso's McLaren at Montreal in 2007? Well, Daniele was Aguri's managing director. And in short, he's experienced so many different aspects of Formula One that his knowledge bank is almost unrivaled. He's also a great storyteller, which is fantastic for us. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Daniel, what a pleasure to have you on the show. You've had a hugely varied career, split largely between Formula One and rallying. Of those two disciplines, in which were you happiest? Well, to be very clear with you, without the rally, I was not able to be that good uh, in Formula One because uh, just to remember, Jean Tot, Fiorio and many others, they had a very successful and long uh, professional life in rally. And in rally, you really have to organize uh, like a battle, you know, like a war, because talking 40, 50 years ago was really like a, to organize a battle rally that uh, last all one week, Monte Carlo, Safari, Acropolis, and was really difficult to be winner in, uh, in rally. And I was with the, uh, Lancia Fulvia, that was less competitive than the Alpine and the Porsche, with the Fiat Abarth 131, that also was not a rally car in the sense of the Stratos of the Alpine or the Porsche, but we managed to win like, uh, you know, a big uh, organization with helicopter, with airplane, uh, radio connection, etc., etc. So when you go in Formula One, it's more uh, political, it's more... Uh, high technology, more ego, but at the end of the day, the organization is you arrive in the airport, you go to the hotel, you go to the track, you go back to the hotel, you go back to the airport, 
end of the story. And when the race starts at my time, was not really strategy because you have a, a set of tires, very hard, like marble. You have the full of uh, fuel and uh, you just start uh, the race and you hope you cross your fingers, but was much more political, was much more, uh, you know, in the FIA and the uh, Bernie tables that you really decide many things. But for the team principal or the sport director, as it was at my time, was really a preparation more, uh, you know, to put the people together, many ego and, uh, you know, engineers for Gieri, Lauda and... Uh, Regazzoni, Reutemann, Gilles Villeneuve, you know, all special people, even the last mechanic in Formula One is a big ego, you know, in the rally, you're more like a, a family and everybody help each other, you travel the world, etc. Et very good time uh, in rally, but also a very good time in Formula One, so I have uh, to say to you that uh, I was happy to have the formation in rally, but I also enjoy very much the Formula One. Fascinating. So, logistically, rallying much more complex than Formula One, but maybe winning in Formula One is harder than rally. Is that a good summary of what you've just said? Well, I disagree with you because uh, in rally, and I gave you the example of Munari with the Fulvia or Rohr with the 131, with the car that is less competitive than the uh, a rally car made on purpose for winning rally, like the Alpine, the Porsche, or the Stratos, you can still win because it's so long and the many factors can make your final uh, result. In Formula One, of course, you must be a very good driver, but nevertheless, if you don't have the best team, it's difficult to win. And remember Russell in the last Grand Prix last year, he showed very well to you and to everybody that with the Williams was fighting for points and with the Mercedes, I think he won the Grand Prix at the end of the day. Okay, he lost, but he was really the clear winner. So in Formula One, if you don't have everything on top, the team, the car, the budget, the best engineer, you cannot win. In rally, you can win. Before we move on from rallying, I did just want to ask you about the Lancia Stratos, because I think a lot of people listening to this, yes, they're Formula One fans, but what an iconic car. It must have been a joy to work with. Yes, that was uh, really the car that uh, we need to beat uh, competitors because the Fulvia HF Coupe was really, you know, we won the Monte Carlo 72, but for many, many different reasons. You know, the Pirelli tires were better than the Michelin of Alpine. We also had a little bit of chance because of the snow on the top of the Turini, etc., etc. But nevertheless, the Stratos was conceived to be the beast to win everything. You know, it was, was really a beast. It's such a good word to describe it, a beast. I love it. Yeah, was 500. 500 cars? Period, you know, that's why they have so much value now. And was conceived by the mind of Cesare Fiorio with our participation. So everybody of us, I was the team manager, Sandro Gunari and uh, all the drivers, has to give the idea of what was a winning car. Okay, so 
was light, was a middle engine, was with a powerful engine that we don't have in the Lancia factory and the production. <laughs> so where we can get the winning engine? Well, the group of Fiat is quite large and includes Ferrari. <laughs> we went to Ferrari and said, can we have uh, the Dino engine for our Lancia? And then very uh, luckily, Cesare Fiorio and Piero Gobato, that was before being the president of Lancia, was the general manager of Ferrari. We got the Ferrari engine. So the package was there, you know, mm. small car, light, middleweight, reattraction, and the power of the Ferrari. Am I right to say that the Stratos uh, was developed by Mike Parks, British engineer and Formula One driver? Absolutely. Mike Parks was uh, the key to develop the, the Stratos. Before was Engineer Dallara. The first one was Engineer Dallara. And Engineer Dallara made a big job to make the car reliable. Because at the beginning, the Strato was not reliable because of uh, the wheel... Um, where you attach the wheel on the back, was made in a thin metal, you know? And then with the engineer Dallara, they decide to make it in a block, one piece. And then the car become uh, uh, reliable. But uh, my past was instrumental to make the Stratos also winning in the circuit, because we also start to win in the circuit and Mike Pars was really a fantastic engineer because the, the advantage that he has from Engineer Dallara that he was a driver. So when he, he speak with Sandro Munari, with Walter Rohr, with uh, Bjorn Waldegar, he really understand what they want and was much easy for Mike Pars to put what the drivers want into the car. So the Stratos became an untouchable beast. He won everything everywhere. Ah, oh, it certainly did. Now, tell us how you made the switch from rallying to Formula One. Well, that was a little uh, unexpected, the telephone call from Mr. Ferrari, because uh, in my position of team manager of Lancia, we won uh, three world championships, one with the Fulvio and two with the Stratos. And one day, Mr. Ferrari called uh, at my home. I don't know how he got my telephone number. And uh, my mother say, is Mr. Ferrari want to talk with you? I say, Mr. Ferrari, hello, Mr. Audetto, I want to talk with you. Oh, yes, Mr. Ferrari, what do you want? Can you come to Maranello? Yes. When? Tomorrow. Yeah, but <laughs> tomorrow. Mr. Ferrari, I, I will try my best, but tomorrow, you know. <laughs> anyway, as soon as you can, come that I want to talk with you. Okay. So in a foggy day, I, I, I draw my Lancia to Maranello. I had to wait two hours in the Gozzi office before I was welcomed by Mr. Ferrari, but nevertheless. And Ferrari said to me, you know, they talk me very well of you. You're very young, but I think you could be the team manager of Ferrari. I am honored, Mr. Ferrari, but you know. I have no experience in Formula One. Uh, racing is racing, and uh, you know, there's <laughs> not a big difference. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much, but I have to, to speak with my bosses, Mr. Fiorio and, and Engineer Gobato, the president. Okay. So he said to me, Gobato was working for me for many years. I am sure we will not have a problem. 
And, and indeed, Mr. Gobatto said to me, Daniele, we have a problem with you if you go to Ferrari, because first, I think you are too young and you have not enough political experience for this world that I know very well. Second, as you know, you are the team manager because we promote Fiorio to be the marketing director. And so if you go away, you put us in a very big uh, problem. So I will uh, call Mr. Ferrari and we will postpone your move to Ferrari for a couple of years. What he did, and they appoint Montezemolo. So Luca was a very successful team manager and he won the championship with uh, Niki Lauda. And then after I finished with the Lancia, Mr. Ferrari was waiting for me, but the condition from the Fiat group, it was that uh, I was going to Ferrari because Luca Montezemolo was promoted uh, director of the external relations of the Fiat group, a very important position, very close to Avvocato Agnelli. But I have to stay under the contract of Fiat for one year only because then they need me back to launch the Fiat 131 Abarth in the rally and we won three more championships to give the possibility for the change from Montezemolo to somebody else. Then it was happened. You're saying that your appointment at Ferrari was as a stand-in ahead of them appointing a permanent sporting director after you? Correct. I always had uh, only one contract. I never had a Ferrari contract. I was like a mercenary. So your contract was with Fiat and they could place you wherever they wanted? Yes, yes. Okay. I, I was Fiat, but I was the sporting director of Ferrari and I was in charge, more important, of all the uh, meeting with the FOCA, Formula One Construction Association, it was with uh, Mr. Bernie Eccleston, Max Mosley, uh, Colin Chapman, Ken Tyrrell, Robin Hard, you know, all these. Of course, all these legends of the sport. So, so we're talking 1975 now, aren't we? That's when you make the switch. The switch was after the Tour de Corse that we won with the Stratos. And then in November, I was attending the first meeting in London with the Formula One Contractor Association. And uh, I met for the first time all these, uh, you know, superstars for us, you know, Colin Chaman, Ken Tyrrell, Bernie Eccleston, uh, Robin Erd, Max Mosley. How welcoming were all those guys? Yeah, very, very friendly. It was really good, very good uh, atmosphere. I was representing Ferrari, so nevertheless, you know, I was uh, representing the world champion because 75 was... Uh, the victory of Niki Lauda, so I was... Uh, and so I started uh, the collaboration, and uh, I have to say I was uh, instrumental many times to make uh, Ferrari and Bernie Eccleston more, not say friend, <laughs> but, you know, to find uh, some solution because Ferrari was a real fighter, extremely clever, intelligent man, and Bernie Eccleston tried to have the control of uh, the Formula One. It was a great... Uh, visionary, businessman, etc., etc. But the interests of Ferrari were different from the English constructor. So it was not easy to be in between. But uh, I was quite diplomatic. At the end of the day, I think we managed to find a good uh, compromise between uh, Mr. Ferrari and Bernie Eccleston. Tell us a little bit more about Mr. Ferrari. What kind of a boss was he? How demanding was he? What did a typical week look like for you in terms of 
your meetings with him? Well, it was like a movie, you know, because Ferrari was unpredictable, very clever. Sometimes I cannot understand his decision because he was looking not one or two days, but he was looking like a, a checker at the player, you know, very, very clever. And uh, I only know one thing after one month. When he called me Daniele, he was uh, in good mood. And when he called me Audetto, it was a problem. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure it was Daniel more often than not, right? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. That was a lesson. And uh, because I am not a a yes man, I like, uh, you know, even if Ferrari is my boss, if I I think I am right, I try to defend my my position, my idea. So I think at the end of the day, uh, Ferrari like also my way of uh, interfacing with him, you know, not a yes man, but somebody that also has the, the, the gut to, to, to say, Mr. Ferrari, I think you're wrong. <laughs> it's very difficult to say to Ferrari, I think you're wrong. But nevertheless, if I believe, so to give you an example, you know, when we went in Brazil, and because of my experience in rally, I asked to have a doctor, because in Brazil, it's very easy to eat something wrong or to have... Uh, the Montezuma, Montezuma disease, etc., etc. So it's very debilitating, you know, to, to, to have cell. So I say, I want to have a doctor in Brazil to take the blood pressure to Nikilauda to clear the so They look to me like crazy because nobody was using Formula One to have a doctor in the Grand Prix. But that was one thing that Ferrari at the end accepted, but he thought that maybe I was uh, spending money that you don't use to spend because money was very important for Ferrari to save money. And another thing that I introduced in the Formula One was the radio, because in rally, for us, it was very normal to have radio to communicate with the drivers, with the mechanics, with the engineer, with the head of the race, etc., etc. So I asked to my technician from the rally to come to Ferrari to make a test in Fiorano. And I remember very well, it was a, a month of August, and the, Clay Regazzoni was testing the radio with an antenna on the top of the helmet, <laughs> and we talked with him from the from the pits, and was working, you know. But then I said, ah, it's a distraction. You, you, I, I think it's a, you know, it's a waste of time and money concentrating. I think so. But we test the radio for the very first time in '76 in Fiorano with Clay Regazzoni and. And now, you know, the radio, they, they yeah. talk like uh, you are in a, in, a, in a pub, you know, they, they talk too much. But Two great stories. And also with the pits to car radio, how much could you hear back then in 76 with the roaring V12 in the back of Rega's car? And Well, we have to understand that we were very well advanced in rally because we had the connection with the airplane or the helicopter coming back to signal to the where I was uh, in, in, my, in my car or in the headquarters of the rally, and they can speak with the drivers, et cetera, et cetera, and, or the drivers, especially in rally like the safari, that the, the server. So I was quite specialized in radio, you know. So it was a little bit noisy because, you know, the 12 cylinder in the back, but nevertheless, it was working. So I am sure that if Mr. Ferrari was supporting, and more important, if we didn't have the accident of Nikki, that, uh, you know, 
was like a, a, a tsunami that, that changed the life uh, for Ferrari for two months. I think we should have continued to develop the radio Formula One. But nevertheless, that was a story that was top of many other projects that I had because of Nicky accident in Nürburgring. Daniele, 76 was a baptism of fire for you in Formula One. I mean, it's crazy to think all of the different things that went on that season for you. Can we start at the beginning of the season? Let's go through that year chronologically because the car was was brilliantly fast early on, wasn't it? And, and Nicky went into the Nürburgring, the German Grand Prix, with a 23-point lead in the championship. You must have thought at that point, before the race, that it was all looking very easy. Well, it's never easy, and that uh, you know until the last uh, Grand Prix and the last finish. But nevertheless, 3-1-2 was... Uh, Really fantastic car. Nicky was in a great, great uh, mood. And uh, you have to remember that the points for the winner were nine, not 25 like today. So 23 points are like uh, almost three wins. Okay, so was uh, more than half a season. And uh, the problem, again, was in the head of Nicky. Why? Because Nicky is such a strong uh, I talk about Nicky in the present, not in the past. He's such a strong personality that when he wants something and he's something in his head, it's very difficult, it's not impossible, to make Nicky change his mind. And Nicky, being an Austrian, German-speaking, was so against the Nürburgring that was too dangerous, too long, difficult to have the first aid, etc., etc., that he really wanted to ban the Nürburgring Grand Prix. And he made such a mess, I have to, to say, with the journalists, because of course the German journalists were in favor of Nürburgring and the drivers were also not very sure they want to race in Nürburgring. So Nicky spent the last week before Nürburgring to arrange meeting with different drivers, with Emerson Fittipaldi, that was the president of the GPVA, etc., etc. And at the end of the day, Nicky convinced the drivers to have a meeting and to vote in favor or against racing in Nürburgring. So you have to understand how emotional was for Nicky this week before the race. I said, but Nicky, forget you are leading. Go slow. Don't take risk. If you 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 know you have. 23 points, just just don't make this mess because, you know, we have everybody against the, the, the organizers, Bernie Eccleston, they already have the contract with the television. No, 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 it's too dangerous, it's too dangerous. Yeah, I don't fucking care. You know, Nicky is a Nicky, you know. It's... And he had this meeting, vote. He lost for one vote. So they vote to race in Nürburgring. And Nicky was very furious, disappointed, you know, because... We have two races. So he was in a bad place mentally going into that race. It was distress. Was 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 really dedicating his mind, not concentrated on the race. He was concentrating on banning to race in Nürburgring. You know, an historic race in Germany. And we were already there, etc. So it was was difficult. Was difficult. But you know, Nicky is Nicky, and uh, he did a good time. Nevertheless, he was second, first row. At this time, you start, the first row was 1-1 one, one on the same uh, level, you know, not eight meters behind. So James was in pole, Nicky was second, said, okay. But start to rain. And Nürburgring to rain 
is quite normal, but it was not good for Nikki, let's say, that was raining because he was already under stress, was better to have a, a, a dry race, etc. But nevertheless, it was raining and we start the race on rain. And at these days, you know, the rain, like the slicks, were like marble, you know. We didn't have the warmer of the tires. You know, you take the tire, it was a piece of ice, you know, you put in the car, you know. The only one to start with the slicks was Jochen Mass. You know why? Because he's German, because he had some friend on the other side of the circuit. When you have such a long circuit, you know, 23, 24 kilometers, you know, could rain at the start, you can have sunshine on the other side. And Jochen was with the slicks. All the other was were with the rain. So start the race. Of course, after half lap, everybody saw the track was dry. So everybody come back to change from rain to slicks. At the time, we don't change the tires in two seconds, but maybe in 15 seconds, you know? And you take this four piece of uh, ice, Goodyear, hard, you put on Nikki and the Quoggy team, we made, not mistake, you know, we was a little bit slow, you know? And he lost uh, three or four places. So he, he, he started that he was even more furious, okay? He started like, a tornado, you know, he overtook immediately two or three cars. Uh, Carlos Passi told me that he, when he, Nicky Passi was like, you know, and he arrived in this famous Berwerk curve that was still in some place wet or humid or whatever, you know, it was cutting on the, on the side of the corner, you have a little bit of uh, cement, you know, that was even more wet, you know, and he lost control on the wet, and he crashed against the rock on the right. Unfortunately, the rock broke the fuel uh, reservoir and the, the flame involved all the car, you know. And Ertel and Lunger even crashed against him. It was total panic. Luckily, Arturo Mersario was so brave to go into the flame. And with the help of Guy Edwards, I think, they, they extract Nikki. It was still conscient, and uh, he was completely burned because he lost the helmet uh, and uh, part of the bataclava, and his face was really horrible because what was more dangerous is that for stopping the flame, they use a lot of uh, fire extinguishers, so this um, chemical that invade the cockpit and Nikki inhale a lot of these uh, fire extinguishers. So Uske von Heistein, that was the race director, came to me and said, Daniel, we have to go immediately to Adenau Hospital because Nikki is there. So because of the, the, the lack of radio and things, how soon after the accident did you in the pit lane know that A, there'd been an accident and B, that it was serious and C, that it involved Nikki? I think it was quite long, maybe more than five minutes, you know, because the radio of the marshal on this place called the race control, the race control called uh, Uske von Einstein, race director, Uske von Einstein came to me and said, come in my Porsche and we go to Adenau Hospital. It was a little hospital in this little village of Adenau. When I arrived at the hospital, I think it was minimum 20 minutes from the accident. And uh, when we arrived, Nikki was awake, was talking to me. But the doctor took me and Uske von Einstein and they say to me that the 
vital parameter of Nikki were very, very bad. And they, they already fear for his life in Adenau. And they say, it's very little we can do here. He should go to a real hospital. So that, when Uske von Einstein was very important to save the life of Nikki, because Uske von Einstein knew the doctor of the Mannheim Hospital, and Mannheim Hospital was, was uh, already with uh, a clean room, you know, where you have to take people with this. Uh, and he had the telephone number of the, this uh, professor. I think his name was Peter. Not first name, family name, Peter, I think. He called him and he said, ah, Uske, what can I do for you? I am just about to leave uh, to go on holiday. He said, no, no, no. Say, Peter, Please, uh, I have Nikki Lauda here that has a very bad accident. I can arrange for an helicopter. Can you go back to the hospital and we send Nikki in the helicopter to Mannheim? He said, okay, okay. You know, for Nikki Lauda, I do that. And he prepared the clean room for Nikki. We arrange for the military aircraft that arrive in a few minutes. And when I put Nikki, into the helicopter on a, on a bench. I touched his hand and his feet and were already cold, you know, almost blue, because the blood circulation was already having problem because of the poison that he inhaled. But he was so lucid to tell me, please inform Marlene, my wife, where I am going, because I don't know, and go in the motoron. MD was the boss of the shock absorber where I left my briefcase with all my documents, the money. So take the briefcase and bring it. So I left Nikki into the helicopter. With Uske, I went back to the circuit. And with Hermano Quoggi, the chief mechanic, I drove to Manai Hospital with the briefcase and I call Marlene. So when I arrive at the hospital, the doctor said to me, we try to save Nikki life. We gave him a oxygen, we make a tracheotomy, but we just hope now, we have to wait 48 hours. So I informed Mr. Ferrari of the situation that, uh, you know, Nikki was in danger of life. Ferrari said to me, Daniele, what are you doing at the hospital? Yeah, I wait for the news to tell you. No, no, no. You, it's not your place, the hospital. The doctors are taking care of Nikki. Now you go back to the paddock and you tell Emerson Fittipaldi that I offer him my car to race for the rest of the season because nobody, nobody was even thinking that Nikki could recover before the end of the season or even to race again, or the worst, to save his life. So Mr. Ferrari was thinking, no, I lost the driver, at least for the season. Go back and ask Emerson Fittipaldi. Why Emerson Fittipaldi? Well, Emerson Fittipaldi was a two-time world champion, and he had a very bad car, the Copersucker, was not competitive at all, and he was struggling with this car, and Mr. Ferrari, quite rightly so, believe that Emerson would accept to become Ferrari driver. Enzo comes across as a very cold, heartless man to be doing this within a couple of hours of Nicky's accident. Yeah, because the situation was 
desperate. So he has to think that he has to make his company live. So you can lose one man, but you have to say maybe, I don't know, 1,000 people, you know, that, that lives on, on Ferrari, not only the racing department, the, you know, the production, et cetera, et cetera. So, I guess it was just different back then, Daniel. I think now people would be shocked if a team owner was thinking two hours after an accident who was going to replace the driver. But I guess it was different back then in that these accidents, serious accidents, happened more often, didn't they? Well, but, you know, even in Senna time, you know, Frank Williams decided to replace Ayrton uh, in two weeks. You know, he took, uh, I, I don't remember, Coulthard or... Coulthard and Mansell, wasn't it? Yeah. So when you approached Emerson about replacing Nicky, what answer did you get? Straight, he said to me, Daniel, if I go back to Brazil, they kill me because, you know, Copersucar is the large, one of the largest uh, companies we have in Brazil. We invest so much money on my name. I really can't. I am so sorry. I would love to drive for Ferrari. But, you know, Copersucar is my project. I put my name, I put everything, and Copersucar, believe in me, and this uh, estate affair, you know, is impossible. And I informed Mr. Ferrari that <laughs> Emerson was really honored, but he has to refuse because of those reasons, you know. And then Ferrari accepted, and uh, he said to me, come back, and, uh, you know, we leave the doctor do the job. And in the night of the accident, Nikki had the last uh, writ, you know, the last race. The story that they say, you know, I like the story, even if probably, you know, Nicky under the, he say to the, to the priest, <laughs> like this, you know, he, he make the finger <laughs> out of the, I don't think it's true, but it's what he like, what he like to, to say, you know, I, I will never die, you know, I, I never die. And in fact, because Nicky was also, physically very strong, not only in his mind, you know, was a guy that never drink alcohol, never smoke, and was really, you know, was not like, uh, because Nicky also changed the attitude of the drivers in Formula One, because he was, in my opinion, knowing all the other drivers, you know, Mario Andretti, Clay Regazzoni, Jacques Lafayette, they were really romantic guys, you know, really gentleman drivers, you know, the, the risky uh, ladies and uh, playing tennis, golf, eh? Nicky was, you know, was, was really the first professional, you know, he had his physio, he drank only milk, and so physically he was really fit, and he started recovering that in, I think, in, in 40 days, when he heard that uh, Ferrari contacted Ronnie Peterson, that was ready to race in Monza. That is, was something incredible, you know. So, so you went from Emerson who said no, to Ronnie. Was he the next telephone call you made? Yes. And Ronnie was driving for March at the time. And that was a little bit more complicated because we had to deal with a, a very famous man, Max Mosley, very tough, that he was making things very difficult for Mr. Ferrari. So he wanted to release uh, Ronnie for some money. And uh, Ferrari, of course, preferred not to pay this money. But at the end of the day, Count Gugi Zanon, a very wealthy man, uh, etc., et friend of Ronnie Peterson, and very well known in Formula One because he was the sponsor with Lavazza of uh, Brambilla and uh, Lella Lombardi. You know, was was really a gentleman and very rich. 
And at the end of the day, they also rumored that he was shareholder with March and with Williams. He helped Frank and Max with some money, he had some share in March and in Williams. So he, said, he came to Maranello to discuss with the Ferrari. And at the end of the day, he said, you know, Mr. Ferrari, I really want to help you and I want Ronnie to race for Ferrari. I will fix everything with the, with the March, with the Max Bosch. And he did. So at the end of the day, Ronnie was ready to come to test the car in Fiorano and Hermano Cuoghi was already making the cockpit adapted to Ronnie, that Ronnie was a little taller, you know, was a big guy, you know, with the pedals and was preparing the car for Ronnie. But Nicky was recovering very fast. And when he heard that Ronnie was going to drive his car, he made another mess. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, I call Luca Montezemolo, that was a big boss in, in the Fiat group. Say, if you do that, you, you really don't respect me because, okay. At the end of the day, Nicky knew very well Ronnie because they were together in March and he knew that, you know, Ronnie was not an easy guy to have. And he was already thinking to be ready to, not only to finish the championship, but he already had the contract for 77. So he really didn't like to have Ronnie as his partner. So. Luca Montezemolo called Giovanni Agnelli that he just had uh, bought the 50% of uh, Ferrari. So Fiat was the, let's say, the co-owner of Ferrari. And more important, they put a lot of money to have the Fiat uh, logo on the Ferrari. So Mr. Ferrari received a telephone call from Giovanni Agnelli, you know, the president of Fiat, a very important man in Italy, etc., etc., and he said, Mr. Ferrari, you know, Nicky won for us the World Championship. He thinks that he will be ready soon uh, to race. And uh, I really ask you not to take Ronnie Peterson. I was in the workshop exactly with Quoggy near the Ferrari car, making ready for uh, Ronnie test. And the secretary of Mr. Ferrari, a gentleman called Valerio, came uh, in the workshop and they asked me, Daniele, Mr. Ferrari want to see you immediately. So I went to, to see Mr. Ferrari and say, he started with Daniele, call Ronnie Peterson, cancel the test because we don't need him anymore. I said, but Mr. Ferrari, I said, you know, it's a big mistake <laughs> <laughs> because we prepared the car, Ronnie is very fast, he will defend the position of Nicky to win the championship and etc. Et so it's, you know, everything is ready. I was really trying to convince Ferrari, not knowing what was the, the background, you know, that was Mr. Agnelli, they asked him to. And Ferrari let me speak for three or four minutes and he said, and then he became very angry against me and say, how that I told you to cancel the test with Peterson, and here I am the boss. You understand or not? Go and call Mr. Peterson. He was so upset. He was so red in his face. And he stand up behind his desk and he was like looking to throw the desk against me. You know, I said, how dare you do what I told you? I am here the boss. I, my God, I said, <laughs> <laughs> cool down, cool down. <laughs> so we stopped everything. And 
And eventually, Bernie Ecclestone was so kind <laughs> to give him uh, Carlos Reutemann. Carlos Reutemann was very welcomed by Nicky and by everybody, very nice guy, fast, but not that fast, easy to, to control if you want. Daniel, sorry, but why did you go and get Reutemann when Nicky had been telling you, don't get anybody, I don't, we don't need anybody? No, well, that is a little different. It didn't say, I don't want anybody. I don't want Ronnie Peterson. Because probably what I understand afterward, that during the period in March, they had some something. You know, they, they were not best friends. Not because he was just fast, but probably because at March time, they had some something, you know. But nevertheless, he was very strong against Ronnie. During... Nicky's recovery, his recuperation, how much contact did you have with him? And can you just tell us a little bit about his spirits and how determined he was and what he was like on the telephone when you spoke to him? Nicky was so upset with me that he didn't want to speak with me because he thought wrongly that I was the man going to offer his car to Emerson Fittipaldi, you know, (laughs) I only did what Mr. Ferrari asked me to do, but he was very upset with me for two reasons. The first one is that I contact Emerson Fittipaldi. And the second one is because on the German television or Austrian television, Austrian television Heinz Prüller, that was a journalist of Orte, uh, radio television, ORF, yeah. gave me an interview and he said, what do you think uh, happened with the accident of Niki Lauda? And I say what I knew, that the car was without any mechanical problem because the four wheels were, you know, marking the asphalt until the impact. So it was true the story that we are trying to say that he broke a suspension. You cannot have the, the mark of the four wheels going in parallel against the impact, you know, because otherwise if you have one one suspension broken, you have one wheel that doesn't mark the, the, the asphalt, you know? So I say, I think that Nicky, we, we, we change uh, the tire is not very fast. He was very, very angry and he, he went too fast on the left corner that were still humid. The, the tires were very cold and he lost control of the car. So that made Nicky even more upset with me because you want me to say that he had like a mechanical problem, but we, we checked the car, we checked the place of the accident. We, we also had the video of an amateur that you can really see the problem that he cut the border on the left a little bit up. Nicky was very upset with me, two reasons, okay? So he only speak with Luca Montezemolo, that in fact, Luca was my boss because I was in FIA contracts, <laughs> And Luca was a boss in, uh, in the Fiat, but nevertheless, my direct boss was Enzo Ferrari. But because of Nicky recovering so fast, uh, was so unexpected, that Ferrari signed the contract with uh, Carlos Reutemann. Because he said, in Monza, we will race with Carlos Reutemann and with Clay Regazzoni, two cars. So Nicky said to me one day, say, look, I am ready to test the car. Ready to test the car? Yes, I want to test the car because I want to race in Monza. Okay, let me inform Mr. Ferrari. Okay, but tell him that I am ready. 
And Mr. Ferrari said to me, listen, in the contract, he has to show me that he's fast and that he's fit to race. Tell him to come to Fiorano. We prepare the car. If he's fast and if he's fit, I cannot, I cannot... Stop him. You cannot prevent him from racing. Yeah. You have to give him a car. But we already have two cars. Okay, we prepare a third car. That was another mistake because, you know, three cars in Monza, you know, nevertheless. We fixed the day of the test. Nikki, you can come, but you have to show to Mr. Ferrari that you are fast and fit. When he arrived, that is a vision that I can never forget in my life. Nikki arrived in Fiorano with his plane that apparently he also drive himself to come to Bologna. He was so pale, he was plenty of uh, scare. He, he lost well air, he cannot close well the eyes. It was like a, a ghost. How excited was he to be getting back in a racing car though? Can you remember that? He was very cool, very cold, very determined, you know. He went into the Fiorano office to put the overall. He came out with the overall that was very large, you know, because he, he lost, I don't know, 10 kilos. He came uh, into the car. Kuogi helped him to put the safety belts. He made two laps, very slow. He came back to the pits, and we look at each other and say, you see, no, he, he was coming back because the, the first bell were too loose, because, of course, he was so skinny, so he want to adjust, uh, he want to adjust a little bit. Uh, to make him more comfortable. So he started to make more laps. Maybe he did uh, 10 laps, you know. Come back, slow, always slow. But no, he wants some ad adjustment on the setup of the car. And then on the 13th, he started to make more laps, more fast, more laps, more fast, more laps, more fast. At the end of the day, he did a lot of laps and he was almost close to the lap record. Something unbelievable. So we say to Mr. Ferrari, look, these are the time. He did 60 laps, you know. He did a very good time, very consistent. Fast and fit. Fast and fit. He demonstrated to us that he was fast and fit. But if you see Nicky, you cannot believe it. If you see his face, if you see his, how he was Skinner. And Ferrari said, hey, we prepare a third car. Reutemann, Regazzoni, Niki Lauber. And we went to, to Monza, and Monza was really a grand casino, like we say in Italy, all the press, uh, all the photographer, the television. Well, I mean, Daniel, a hell of a story, isn't it? I can only imagine what it must have yes, been like. Yes. And Niki, when he took out the helmet, all the bataclava was red of blood, because, of course, we are not, but he, he cannot take the bataclava out because it was sticky on his face with the blood. So he had to go with some water also. We managed to take away the bataclava. He cannot close the eyes because of the accident and was uh, always wet, the eyes, you know, because if you cannot close the eyes, you are wet. So the, vis the vision is not so good. But to make the long story short, he finished the race in fourth position. And he was maintaining the leadership of the championship because James Sant was discovered at last with the wrong fuel, with more obtains that he was using, not Texaco that was the sponsor, but a special chemical fuel that was not legal. 
So he, he took away the time of the quali and he, he started in last position and he, I think he had an accident. So Nicky Ford increases advantage on James. Did you get emotional after the race? Was he emotional? Yes, you have to stay cool. Otherwise, if you, if you lose to the emotion, you are not uh, professionally fit. You have to think what is your job and you have to stay cool and uh, avoid the emotion, take advantage of you. Otherwise, it's, it's a completely mess. I try to keep Nikki alone as much as I can without everybody want to have an interview, photograph, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So what I did was really to keep Nikki a little bit uh, away from the, the chaos, you know, but uh, very little I, I can do. But the emotion, of course, inside me was a lot, but I have to show that I am cool, that I can speak with Nikki and with the engineer, cool. And Daniel, in your 40 plus years in Formula One, was that the single most impressive performance that you ever saw? Absolutely, absolutely was something that you have to leave these moments to understand how good, how determined, how strong was Niki Lauda. Niki Lauda was not only a champion, because of course he won three world championships, but was an incredible man. He was controlling inside him the, the, not only the emotion, but the strength, you know, because you can imagine that 40 days before he had the last wrist and he was fourth in Monza. It's unbelievable. I saw him into the helicopter that I, I was thinking, I never see you alive, I was thinking. And he was in Monza racing and finishing fourth. That's unbelievable. I can't forget for all my life and another life all these moments. If we then fast forward that 76 season to Fuji and... Nicky's withdrawal from the race. Were you surprised that he parked it after a couple of laps, given that you'd gone into that race leading the world championship by three points? Okay, now you have to know the truth. And the truth is quite different. Because when we had the monsoon in Fuji, everybody understood that it was impossible to race. Just impossible, because the track was not a track, it was a river. And the water was not water, it was a cascade, you know, it was like the Niagara Falls. And when you have a monsoon in Japan, it's really a big monsoon, you know. It's... But because of the fight between Nikki and James to the last race, and Nikki was still leading with three points, Bernie asked to Nikki, to James, and to Emerson Fittipaldi, that was the president of the GPDA, to go in his office and to reach an agreement. And the agreement was because at five o'clock we lose the TV connection, you know? That's right. It was being broadcast live for the first time, wasn't it? For Bernie, it was, was a big deal, big money, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So he said, look, we are going to lose everybody if we don't start the race. We lose with the TV broadcast. We lose with the organizer because if we don't start the race, we lose uh, the starting money, the, the promoter's money. All the team will lose money and at the end, you lose money as well. So what I ask you is to start the race and to stop after two races. I want just that you start legally the race, okay? And then 
you stop, and I, I understand that you cannot race in such a condition. Okay? They shake hands and they agree to stop after the start. James, Nikki, and Emerson, all three shook hands. Correct. Interesting. What I didn't know, and that you can read the uh, uh, Morris Hamilton book on Nikki Lauda, that he made uh, an interview with Alistair Caldwell, but with Teddy Mayer, that was the boss, was the team manager, Bob McLaren, that when James came to the pit and say, okay, I start, but I have to stop, because I agree this with Bernie, Nikki, Emerson, and I agree. Teddy Meyer, that was a lawyer, and Alistair Caldwell, that was the team manager, they say, James, if you do that, we kill you, your career forever. You will lose everything. You will lose all the money and you will be a poor man for the rest of your life. If you do that, you are a dead man in sportive sense. So they scare so much James, but James cannot go back to tell Nikki because they just, they, they are on the grid. You know, it was raining like hell. In the interview that uh, Maurice Hamilton made, uh, Alistair Colway confirmed to Maurice Hamilton this story. That is the only true story. That was not in the Rush movie. You know, that is the real story. So Alistair Colway, because Teddy Mayer unfortunately passed away, he said, yes, it's true. James came and said to us, I have to stop because I agree this, but we convince him in the good manners or bad manners that he cannot do that for the team. And Nicky stopped after one and a half lap. On the second lap, he stopped. My mistake was professionally, I had to say, Nicky, go out and wait that James stop as well. Don't stop you first. But under this rain, seeing Nicky in the helicopter almost dead, Seeing what he passed. So can you imagine if I force him to go out and he have as a because you know people were spanning uh, uh, oh, crashing. Oh. My heart was stronger than my head. I say to me, it's better one life that a world champion, you know. But in reality, I have had to say, Nikki, go out, go slow, but wait. Because in fact, after 15, 20 left, like all the monsoon, decrease a lot at the end of the day of the race. Do you think Nicky felt cheated, the fact that he stopped and James didn't? At the beginning, yes. But James was a really a gentleman and nobody know he was a good friend of Nicky. So James explained to Nicky what happened. James tell Nicky, I am so sorry, but you know, what happened with Teddy Mayer and Alice Colbert, I, I, I was really taken by the troth, you know, and I cannot refuse to not stop. And I had to go ahead and I finished third. I didn't even know that I was third. I, I thought I, I, I lost the championship. So Nicky forgive James. He lost the championship, but he won the year after for Ferrari 77. He was champion again. And that is the end of the story. But the reality is that they agreed to stop with Bernie Eccleston. And how did Nicky pulling out of the race affect his relationship with Enzo Ferrari? 
At the beginning, Enzo Ferrari was supporting Nikki's decision. But because the relationship with Nikki were already damaged by the fact of Emerson Fittipaldi, the fact of Ronnie Peterson, the fact that we declare in an official press release that the car didn't suffer any mechanical failure, etc., etc. But we already had a contract with Nikki to race in 77. So as soon as he was sure to have the championship in the pocket before the last two race, Canada and Japan, he said, thank you, bye-bye. And he took with him two or three very important people from Ferrari, like Hermano Cuocchi, the chief mechanic, to go to race for Brabham. Mm-hmm. Do you think Nicky was even better in 77 than he was in 76? No, I think the car was really good. I think that Nicky in 76 was, until the accident, he was uh, untouchable. Because you have not to forget uh, another point, that in Harama, the Spanish Grand Prix, James won with an illegal car. And uh, Nicky finished second with a broken rib, but at the scrutineering, they saw that the car was too wide and was too high the, the rear wing and was disqualified. So Nicky won Harama. So he had even more points. But because uh, Teddy Mayer was a very good lawyer and not only the team owner of McLaren, they made a fantastic uh, um, defense of the case that they show to the court, to the sporting court, that this little, you know, in, in, a, in a Mickey Mouse circuit like Yarama, was not little because to have a car larger a couple of centimeters and the rear wing higher one centimeter was a big advantage. But nevertheless, they made some calculations to demonstrate that the advantage was not so important to change the result. And they gave back in the appeal the, the first position to James Hunt, but Nicky also won Harama legally. And also only in Monza, because we had the, the Italian steward informed, because also the smell of the fuel of McLaren was strange. They discovered only in Monza that the fuel was with more octane that was legal. And did you have reason to believe that McLaren had been using that fuel all season or just at Monza? Well, it's strange that when you make the first test of the fuel, because nobody you know, it's so complicated, but in Monza, we are very close to the AGIP, uh, big, uh, any company where they have all the laboratories, so it was easy to make. But, you know, to make the test in Brazil, in South Africa, in, in Zandvoort, you know, where we race under stop in the middle of nowhere, was not easy. But because Monza is near Milan, Milan is near the big laboratory of any uh, Ajip. We take sample of every car, you know, not only uh, McLaren, but all, Ferrari, etc., etc., and they made the test. And the test was that the fuel of McLaren was over the number of legal obtains. I can believe or not, but nevertheless, the only test was made. They, they discovered that the, the fuel was... Uh, and, you know, with the eight-cylinder, the Cosworth was very, very fast, the McLaren of James Hunt, also Jochen Mas. I, I, I could think 
that maybe they used the same, uh, it was not Texaco that was the sponsor, it was not Texaco, it was a, a, a special fuel made in England. It's crazy to think that all this happened in your first 12 months, not only your first 12 months in Formula One, but your first 12 months at Ferrari. It's, it's an incredible story, isn't it? When it all came to an end for you at Ferrari, can you just describe your relationship with Enzo Ferrari at the end? Did you fall out with him? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And uh, I continue to have uh, a, also a professional uh, relationship with the Ferrari because I continue in my new position of head of uh, Fiat Motorsport. It was not only Fiat, but I also represent Fiat in FIA in Paris, you know, I continue to attend some meeting and to have some contact with Eccleston, Max Mosley, etc., etc. The following year, middle, I went to see Mr. Ferrari in Fiorano in the month of August, and he told me, Daniele, I have to tell you the truth. I know you were right with Ronnie Peterson, but I cannot tell you the truth then. I tell you the truth now. I was forced to make this decision. So it was a satisfaction for me, but at the end of the day, I was trying to fight for Ferrari, not for Niki Lauda or for Ronnie Peterson. My job was to make Ferrari winning and to defend what was the best in my idea, in my opinion, the best for Ferrari. And in everything you've achieved in your career, were these two years at Ferrari the highlight? Of course, the, the, the victory in Monte Carlo was special because I was born in the middle between San Remo and Monte Carlo. That's why I start with my passion in motorsport because San Remo is the famous rally of San Remo World Championship. Monte Carlo is the rally and the Formula One Grand Prix. And in Monte Carlo, I had my father in the pit. I had many friends and so and I won already many times in Monte Carlo for Dorelli, et cetera, et cetera. So Monte Carlo was a little bit like my second city. And uh, winning in Monte Carlo with Nicky and Ferrari for me was, was a fantastic day. It was a big celebration. So that is a very good memory. And the second was when uh, I put Nicky in the helicopter. That also was uh, the moment of my life, uh, the moment... Of, when I put Nikki in the helicopter and the moment that I saw Nikki coming to test the Ferrari in Fiorano, that are the top moments of my year in Ferrari. Fantastic. Now, I've just got a few more things I'd love to ask you about. Um, those two races that Nikki didn't do at the end of 77, Gilles Villeneuve came in very raw, very fast. Just can you remember the impression he left on you? I say to Ferrari because I met... Uh, to request of Ferrari, Gilles Villeneuve in Montreal to give to Ferrari my feelings. And he came with Joanna in Harley Davidson almost in the hall of the hotel where I was waiting for him. Wrong, 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 wrong. He came to the desk and said, where is Mr. Audetto? In the Quebecois, Quebec uh, slang, you know? Hey, Mr. Audetto is, is there waiting for you. Ah, okay. We talk. Half an hour, you know, how are you doing? He was coming, you know, with a very good result with uh, McLaren in Silverstone. And uh, the reality is that uh, Philip Morris, Marlboro, was really pushing for Gilles to drive for Ferrari. 
and they were ready to put a lot of money on the table for Gilles. And of course, even Ferrari, in principle, was against the sponsorship from cigarette, but Gilles was a Philip Morris driver, you know, was, and the Canada and United States were very important market for Philip Morris. Nevertheless, you know what I say to Mr. Ferrari? <laughs> I don't think he's the right driver for Ferrari. <laughs> I say to Ferrari, I don't think he's the good driver for Ferrari. And then Gilles became like a son for Ferrari, you know. But my opinion, very blunt, he say, Mr. Ferrari, I don't think this kid, you know, was, was like a Teddy Boys, you know, was like, a, you know, was... I, I don't see Gilles, not in a Ferrari car, in the Ferrari world, you know, because... Daniele, why? Why, why didn't you see him as a Ferrari guy? Body language, how, how we speak, how, how he was so ag- ag- aggressive. No, not aggressive. Was... was he very confident? Oh, overconfident. And this is all from your meeting with him at the Montreal Grand Prix that year? Not at the Montreal Grand Prix. No, no, much before. I went to Canada for a rally world championship. And Ferrari asked me, while you are in Canada, please, can you meet her? And tell me, what do you think about this guy? Because Philip Morris is talking to me very well. And, you know, I really want to have a double opinion, you know, yeah. <laughs> or a second opinion. And I say to Ferrari. <laughs> but nevertheless, he started in Canada and he had many problems. It was, you know, of course, first race, you know. Then he went to Furano, he started to test, and then he went to Japan. And in Japan, flew over the wheels, the small wheels of uh, the Tyrrell, I think, uh, Ronnie or Depayet, I think it was Ronnie. He flew over the, the, the barrier, and he killed two people, minimum, because we, we never know exactly. And Mr. Ferrari started to have some, some doubts, but because I brought to Ferrari a deceiver, as the third driver, in case of Nicky decide to stop his Then, when uh, Eddie Cheever knew that in Canada, because logistically was already there, Gilles, to race on the place of uh, Nicky that retired, Eddie Cheever went to Maranello with his lawyer. He said, Mr. Ferrari, I am very sorry that you choose for Gilles Villeneuve when I had the contract. And Mr. Ferrari said, you are not happy, Mr. Chiver? No, I am not happy. So he asked, De La Casa, bring me the contract of Mr. Chiver. So if you are not happy, Mr. Chiver, here's your contract. Crack, crack, crack. And he gave the contract to Eddie Chiver. And then after Japan, he told me, you know that if this Eddie Chiver didn't want to break the contract, maybe I was thinking... To give him, uh, you know. Have you told Eddie that? Eddie, no. <laughs> Poor Eddie. Yeah, but you know, how we start, you know, Jill was really a, a public danger. He was driving the car like mad. He was a special guy, this Jill. He was going against the, the odd of a normal life. You know, at the end of the day, he was destined to, to, to have a, a tragic end, you know, because... He was taking a risk, everything he was doing, going out in the boat when the sea in Monaco was so rough, he was going out with the little jack in the back of a big cigarette with mercury power, jumping over the waves, 
going with the helicopter. He was going like uh, driving from Monte Carlo to Modena with this Ferrari in two hours and 20 minutes, uh, going all the way to 150, etc. He was a guy that loved taking risks everywhere. Yeah, no margin. No margin. Now, look, another thing I'd love to ask you about is your time at Lamborghini. You were the boss of their Formula One activities between 89 and 93. And there's one instance in particular I'd like to ask you about. And that was in 1993 when you put one of your engines in the back of the McLaren. Senna tested it at Estoril. Just tell us what happened. First of all, he tested in a small circuit called Pembrey in Wales. Oh, is it Pembrey? Okay. Secret. Okay, secret. He tested the car, and you know what he say? The car, the engine is too powerful. Yeah, show me the the engine power, you know, the curve, you know? And this engine was really very powerful, but he had the camel curve, you know? I, I, I don't know that the torque, you know, was going too low and then coming up. But you have uh, between 7,000 and 9,000 uh, revs uh, that was really with uh, little power, okay? No torque. Lot of power, little torque. Nicky said, look, I prefer you take down 10, 15, 20 horsepower, but feel the low, feel the torque. I want more torque because the effect of this engine, when I come in a chicane or in a store, when the power comes, it's like to have a kick from a turbo, you know, it's, it's difficult to control, you know, in, in, in slower. We went back to Modena. We modify the camshaft and the air intakes. In fact, we lost 15 horsepower, but we came to again, if I remember well, of more than 50 horsepower on torque. So the, the curve of the engine was much more linear, you know. Smoother. So we went to Estoril, we beat the record. We went to Silverstone, we beat the record. Did Senna drive on all three occasions? Senna drove in Pembrey, and I think in, in one occasion was Akinen driving. But also Akinen broke the record of the previous Grand Prix. And Ayrton tried to convince Ron that he wanted to race, the last two races, Japan and Australia, with the Lamborghini engine with the same car. It was made by Giorgio Scanelli, the chief engineer in McLaren, in 30 days. They just changed the back end. They put the Lamborghini, it was a 12-cylinder and not a cylinder. And the car was just fantastic. You know, the power was so smooth. And the Ayrton wanted to race, the last two races, with the Lamborghini, not with the Cosmo. But for contractual reasons, for logistic reasons, it was not possible. One day, one night, was 10 o'clock. I was still in my office because we were just packaging two engines that we were sending to walking for the next test with uh, McLaren. And uh, the telephone ring, no mobile phone, the, the telephone on my desk ring. Hello, I am Ron. Hi, Ron, what are you doing? Yeah, I am in Paris. Ah, okay, good, Paris. Daniel, I have to give you a bad news. What happened, Ron? I just signed a contract with Peugeot. What? With Peugeot? Yes, because uh, Chrysler did not believe me and uh, 
I have to pay you 50% of the engine. With the Peugeot, I have the engine for free, and they give me 10 million to develop the engine. For me, it's a big difference. I have to take care of my business. And even if your engine is good, I am sure that Peugeot will do a good job because they will transform the engine from Le Mans 24 hours into a Formula One engine. And don't send the two engine that you're supposed to send tonight to walk in because, but you told to the boss of Chrysler that a shake end is more important than a thousand page contract. Ron, what, what can I do? Daniel, that is the decision. Do what you want, inform. Uh, and that was the end of the story, but not the end of the story, because Ailton didn't want to race with uh, McLaren and the Peugeot, and he was right because they blew all the engine all the time. He went to Williams, and you're not the end of the story. How gutting was that news for you? And do you think you could have persuaded Chrysler to be a little bit more committed financially? It was too late. When we made the deal with Ron, was in the Frankfurt uh, uh, Auto Show. All the big boss of Chrysler were there. Bob Lutz, uh, Jerry Greenwald, uh, Francois Castaigne, etc., etc., and Ron Dennis. And I had in my briefcase the contract, as decided with Ron and uh, Martin Widmarsh. And uh, they were very busy because they had the big stand of Chrysler, Jeep, uh, etc., etc. Ron said, to Bob Lutz and Jerry Greenwood and uh, Francois Castaigne. Between gentlemen, is more important a shake hand than a thousand page contract. So Bob said to me, Daniel, don't open your briefcase and that we have to sign. You know, we have the deal and I start to change our engine from Magneti Marelli to Tag Electronic because this was one of the conditions in the contract to change from Magneti Marelli to Tag Electronics because it was a request from Ron Dennis. So hang on, at the Frankfurt Motor Show in 1993, the boss of Chrysler shook hands with Ron Dennis for a deal, McLaren Lamborghini in 1994. Yeah, 50-50. So the deal was, let's say, if I remember well, was $20 million, okay? Ron has to pay $10 million and Chrysler paid $10 million to Lamborghini and we make the engine. And the engine was really fantastic. We only had... A, small teams like Liger, LaRousse, Minardi, etc. But the engine was fantastic. So the deal was shake hand. If you shake hand with Bernie, it is better than a contract because 100%. You shake hand with Ron, it happened what it happened, you know, because business is business, you know, for Ron. And it's not that I have to convince Chrysler to be a little bit more. The deal was a deal. So they agreed to share the cost of the engine. But then when he called me, he called me and said, I have a contract. And the day after, Tom Walkinshaw and Flavio Briatore, they came with Tom Plain to take one engine. They tested in the bench of TWR. They saw 40 horsepower more than the Cosworth. They flew to Detroit to see the bosses in Chrysler. And they say, please, can we have the engine? We pay what you want. We want the engine for our Benetton, you know. And Chrysler say to Tom and to Flavio, no, we forget Formula One because you are not serious people. We had a deal with McLaren. They broke the deal. Now we forget Formula One. They asked me to close Lamborghini forever. They sold Lamborghini to Tommy Suardo. And that was the end of Lamborghini, thanks to Ron Dennis. 
They were so disappointed in, in the way Ron had treated them. Well, business is business. Mm. And do you think if the Lamborghini engine had gone to McLaren in 1994, they may have kept Ayrton Senna at the team? Do you think Senna wanted to drive that combination? 100%. He was so pleased with the engine. With the, the car was so fast, so easy to drive. The engine became so smooth with this, with the new curve of the power. You know, was Ayrton won two race, the last two races already with the Lamborghini engine. Wow, what a story. Well, look, it's been so wonderful talking to you, but I feel... We can't end this conversation without briefly mentioning Super Aguri, because, of course, it was a it was a cult team in a way, wasn't it? It was hugely popular. Just talk us through the birth of Super Aguri, how it came about. I remember it being all very last minute, but how was it from your vantage point? Well, one day, Aguri, it was racing for Lamborghini with LaRousse, and it was the best result of Lamborghini, third in the Japanese Grand Prix in Suzuka with the LaRousse Lamborghini was, you know. And uh, Honda asked Kaguri, can you set up a Formula One team because we have a problem with uh, Takuma Sato? Because Takuma had a contract with Honda, but they decided to take uh, Baton and probably Barrichello, I don't know, and Takuma was without a Formula One seat. So that's for 2006, isn't it? Yes. So Aguri flew to England, came to see me and said, Daniel, can you help? I like the big uh, challenge, you know, that was really big. And we did, uh, with the old Arros, we did the Super Aguri and we did well. And on the second year, we did uh, also too well because we create a big problem to Honda because Super Aguri was faster than Honda. <laughs> Japanese cannot accept that a small team with a budget that was one quarter on the budget could beat them. Daniel, I'll never forget Canada 2007. Taku finished sixth, overtaking Fernando Alonso. I'll never forget it. Exactly, exactly. And Honda was feeling losing the face. My problem was that our team was too good to Honda and they cannot accept. And they say to, to the people at Honda, listen, how is possible that Super Aguri is faster than you, that you spend four times more, that you have this big company, that you have big factory, that you have the wind tunnel, et cetera, et cetera. And it was difficult to explain. So the president of Honda say, you know, now end of the story, you stop. You stop, you close Super Aguri, you close Honda and then Honda sold for one pound to Ross Brown that won the championship. And we had to stop even if we had the possibility to sell to, you know who? Nikki gave me the telephone number of Toto Wolf. And Toto Wolf called me and he said to me, look, can we talk that I am interested to buy Super Aguri? And I wow. said to Honda, look, I have a potential buyer. Was this Austrian that nobody knows, Toto Wolf, you know? And Honda say, no, we don't want to sell. We don't want to. We just close Honda Formula One operation. Stop. And that was the end of the story. Honda decided to stop Formula One at all. Can you remember what kind of impression Toto Wolf left on you after that meeting? No, no, it was not a meeting. Oh, it was only a telephone call. Okay. Yeah, telephone call, you know, was very short. He said, I call you back. And then I call you back and say, no, unfortunately, Honda doesn't want 
to sell or, or to continue to supply the engine or whatever. So we had to stop. Are you surprised that Honda are pulling out of Formula One at the end of this year, just as it looks like it's it's getting good with Red Bull? Well, I am a better witness because I, I witnessed the same problem with the Super Aguri doing so well because my idea was Honda will stop the Honda team and will put all the resources into Super Aguri that we are doing so well. Honda decisions are not dictated by logical uh, sporting uh, factors, but I don't know. I was not surprised. No. Well, Daniel, thank you very much for your time. What a super chat. I've loved every second of talking to you and what an amazing career you've had as well. Well, thank you. It was a long one and uh, I'm still happy to be involved in some uh, project. They asked me some uh, consulting, but, you know, I am very, very happy that uh, I can uh, tell some story like I am doing with you because... That is a big fan for the people listening to us. It sure is. Daniel, look, super to chat. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, Tom, nice talking to you. Some really incredible tales there. In fact, there are so many highlights that it's difficult to know where to start. I loved hearing about his two years at Ferrari. So much happened during that time. First, with Nicky's crash and subsequent comeback. But there were nuggets of gold elsewhere as well, such as Daniele advising Enzo Ferrari against signing Gilles Villeneuve. And what about the McLaren Lamborghini story? Had the team gone with Lambo instead of Peugeot for 1994, would Senna have stayed at the team? And how interesting was it to find out that Daniele was the first person to bring a doctor to races and to test pits-to-car radio communications? Daniele, many thanks for your time. That was a fascinating chat, and I hope to see you at a race again soon. Before we move on, as ever, please send in any stories or thoughts that you have on Daniele. They can be from rallying or racing from any of his five decades involved in the sport. And remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Send them to me at Tom Clarkson F1 or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Peter Collins after last week's show. Peter is a font of knowledge, isn't he? And he gave so much fascinating insight into the people and teams that he worked with in Formula One. YNS Saikiran got in touch to say this. I loved hearing from someone who has such a clinical view on the way things are done in Formula One. It was also great to hear about a classic era of Formula One from him. And he worked with both geniuses and great personalities of that era. Thanks, Peter. Peter was clinical in his approach, wasn't he? That definitely came across in our conversation. So thanks, YNS, for getting in touch. And what about this from Nuno Leal? Again, you nailed it, Tom. Well, thanks, Nuno. Those stories from the 80s are always amazing, and Peter Collins brought some amazing pieces of Formula One history. Just brilliant. Well, thanks again, Nuno, and I found exactly that while talking to him. I felt a whole era of the sport came back to life in that conversation. He had an amazing ability to do that. Well, we'll leave it there, and I'm sorry if I haven't read out your message. Thank you to everyone who sent them in. I've read them all, and I love them. 
Well, that's it for another week. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Daniele Aldetto. And remember to send in your thoughts and stories on him. As ever, I'll be back next week with another great guest from the world of Formula One. So see you then. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.